Well, praise God. I, I am really excited uh, about being able to share tonight. It was a, a message that I have worked on here and there over, I guess, the last few months or so. And just the most interesting timing, I was getting ready to come here to the church and I had a missed call from a number I didn't know and it was a voicemail and I'm usually getting ready for those to be spam you know, calls and whatnot. Uh, there's less of them now that the elections have you know, taken place, so that's nice. But nonetheless, when I was listening to the messages, one of the coolest things was I'm listening to this message and it was from somebody that I have known for a very long time, since he was a very little kid, before I was saved, he used to live across the street from me. And, you know, he was really little, but I was a partier back then, didn't know the Lord. And over the course of time, that's what he saw. And he thought, oh, Chad's that, you know, wrestler guy. He's my neighbor. He has the big parties and all of that. And then, you know, years later, I come to know Jesus Christ. And, and he will be the first one to tell you, he, as he got older, got into drugs, some heavy drugs. And one night, um, my, uh, my wife and I, and I believe Greg Drinkle, we took out the youth group to the Regal here in Simi Valley, and we went out with the youth group, and we shared the gospel with the kids that were hanging out there. It used to be a much, I guess, cooler place to hang out than it is now. Now it's pretty much, you know, I think you probably see some tumbleweeds there uh, sometimes, and there's no reason for them to be there. It's just there's nobody else there. Uh, but at that time, there was a lot of younger people there, and so we were like, let's, ta- let's go there. Let's go and share the gospel. And next thing you know, I run into my old neighbor, and he is, he is as high as a kite. He was actually told me he was dropping acid earlier that night. And I said, oh, you know, that's all right. You still need Jesus. And I said, hey, I'm going to give you a ride home right now. My wife and I took him home, and um, we prayed over him. And uh, I believe my sister was even there, and we prayed over him. We took him home, and, you know, that was that. And then I gave him my number. I said, call me if you need anything. And then a week later, he's like, oh, man, and he's like, I just got cut my finger off. Uh, he said he was high again, and he went to stick his hands between the spoke of a motorcycle to see if he could get his hand through it and cut his finger off. And I'm like, oh, man, all right, let, you, got, you, you really need some help, bro, and uh, let, let, me, let me see what I can do. And so I took him to the men's discipleship at that time. It was a very long time ago, and he wasn't even old enough, I don't think, to go to the men's discipleship, but I'm like, this guy needs something. And so I took him there, and he came to church a few times, and then, you know, we kind of lost touch, and that happens, and that was, man, I don't think Holly and I were married, so that was over 10 years ago, and he was the one who called tonight, and he said that he was looking for something, and um, he was wondering if I still went to Blessed Hope Chapel, and he was wondering if he could start coming to church on Sunday. And the main reason is because his girlfriend of seven years has no hope, and she ha- she has no hope. And she and he said, I just remember that I got my life together and I stopped using drugs back then, all those years ago, all because you and your wife took me home, and. That's what he said. He said, I I just, I I now have a good job and, you know, I I want her to have some hope too. So they'll be here on Sunday. So you guys make sure you guys say hi to them. Uh, But nonetheless, my, the message that I had written uh, out and had been working on is called The Promise of Hope through judgment. And that's something that we see over and over again in the scriptures. And it was so interesting uh, because 
A lot of you guys here have come to know me pretty well, and I imagine um, when I was younger, you probably noticed that I was definitely a bull in a china shop when it came to sharing the gospel, and a lot of times I was probably pretty rough around the edges, but nonetheless, one thing I was always very sincere about was the fact that there is a coming judgment coming. And the fact is, is that Jesus Christ died a horrible death on the cross to save us from our sins. And I was thinking about just the times that we're in, and I remember watching the news not too long ago. And when we think about the nativity scene and Christmas and so forth, a lot of people are thinking about gifts and all of that stuff and whatever. But when Christians really think about these things, we think about them theologically. We think about the incarnation of God becoming a man and how awesome that is that he came to pay for our sins. But something that I found so interesting and it gave me a really good insight was something that I had watched on TV. In fact, uh, one of the guys from the Freedom From Religion Foundation was on the TV and he was really upset that nativity scenes were being put up in places that were for public usage. So some cities were allowing in their city hall to have nativity scenes. So he was trying to fight and his name's Dan Barker, if you guys have ever heard of him, he claims to be an ex-believer. In fact, I believe when Nick Paneri was going to Cal Lutheran, what a lie of a school claiming to be Christian, but I believe Dan Barker even came and spoke there to try to tell Christians why they shouldn't be Christians. And this guy was basically on the TV saying, here's why we don't believe that nativity scenes should be allowed on public places. And it's the fact that the nativity, while you point to, hey, this is Jesus becoming a man, God becoming a man, he said the problem is, is that's telling everyone that they're sinners. Because what's happening is God becoming a man and Jesus being born in the manger, what's happening there is that all of the world is now being said that the things they've done are actually crimes, they're sins. So he had a big problem with it. And I said, well, amen, (laughs) that's exactly right. And the fact is, is that Jesus becoming a man and dying the horrible death that he did on the cross does point to the fact that we are sinners. That's exactly why he did come. So, you know, in my mind, if an atheist is going to be upset about something, you know, be upset about it. But you know what? I could be upset jumping off the building that I can't fly, but gravity is gravity nonetheless, and I can believe whatever I want, and I'm still going to go splat. It's all the same. And the same thing happens. And I was thinking about that in relation to the incarnation, because so many times when we see the promises, even before Jesus actually came, but some of the prophecies that led to it, so many times we have this hope, this hope that is entangled with the judgment that is to come. In fact, even in Matthew chapter one, when Joseph is being talked to by the angel Gabriel, This is one of the things that he says, and we have to recognize this, and it's very interesting, but we can see how God brings about his promises of hope, but it's always through judgment, a lot of times at least. It's through judgment. And in Matthew chapter one, starting at verse 20, it says, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save 
his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Yeah, that's right, Catholics. She did not stay a virgin, actually. She had other children. In fact, we have multiple epistles by some of her children known as James and Jude as well. But nonetheless, when we look at this text, we can think of, and a lot of people right now, you think of that verse from Isaiah 7:14, And I want to go more into that later in this because I think it has some really good context when we understand the near and far fulfillment of that text. But when you just think about the concept of God with us, God actually being with us, I think that most of us think about the incarnation, right? Most of us think about this verse right here. In Matthew 1, 20, he's quoting it, the virgin shall be with child. This is a sign that God is giving them. And guess what? It is amazing that God would be with us here on earth. That's incredible to think about. But also think about the fact that God with us is a double-edged sword. Because for those who are in Christ, for those who are saved, for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, man, isn't that so sweet? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it awesome to be saying, God is with us. This is amazing. But what about for those who do not know Christ when God is with us? In fact, in the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter, starting at verse 5, we actually get to see what it's like when God will be with us at his second coming and what it will be like and why it is a double-edged sword because on one side, we have the believers getting to be with Jesus forever and on the other side, we have the non-believing world. In Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse five, it says this, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's a beautiful, beautiful promise that we have as believers. But here's the other side of that sword. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So God with us, for us believers, is something of great beauty. It's something so amazing. We talked about this last night a little bit at our young adults group. We had a Christmas party for the young adults. And one of the things we were talking about last night was just an understanding of why Christ hasn't come back. And when you look at the earliest letters in the church, when you look at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, some of the earliest letters written to the churches, right? At least Pauline. The first two letters that Paul wrote are probably, at least 1 Thessalonians might, is probably his first one, or Galatians, but most people say 1 Thessalonians is probably his first letter written. And when he gets into that letter over and over again, when you read it, he has eschatological or end times teaching that he engages with in a brand new church that was just planted. 
I mean, you think about it. He actually points back to when it was planted. He goes back to what took place in Acts chapter 16 through 18. He talks specifically about these events and what they are like and how they're trusting God's word. And immediately in this brand new church, he thinks that talking about the end times is important. And in fact, one of the things that he does is he surrounds all of the practical teaching of 1 Thessalonians, all of it, those, the wonderful text that he ends it with in chapter 5 where he tells us pray without ceasing, right? That in all things give thanks. There's just these, you know, these statements of practical teaching of how the believer should walk. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, when he talks about the will of God for all of us, the will of God for all of us, God, what is your will for my life? He says, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that every single believer knows how to control his own body and not like the unbelievers with their passions and lusts. But that's wrapped and steeped up in the fact that Jesus Christ one day is coming back. And we don't want to be getting drunk with the drunkards. We don't want to be, and I believe he's making parallels to the teachings that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olivet when he does so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he warns of all the very things that Jesus gave great parables about about these men who go and they get, start getting drunk with the drunkards. Ah, oh, he delays his coming. The king's not coming back. Everything's gonna be fine. And he says, no, he's gonna, kinda, he's gonna come to them. And when he comes to them, he's coming to those who say, oh, everything's fine. Everything, it's okay. We can go get drunk with the drunkards. We can do our stuff. And he said, we are not these people. Those who get drunk get drunk at night, but we are children of the day. Those who he comes upon like a thief in the night who are not ready for it are those who are not looking forward to, do not have the helmet of salvation, the promise of his return on his head, looking forward to Jesus coming back. And so we have this so clearly taught to us over and over again, the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have now when the very thing that needed to be fulfilled for us to know him and have our sins paid for as Daniel chapter nine prescribed that it would be giving us the date in which it would happen, at least the year timeline of when it would, when it would take place, the end of sin, when Jesus would to die, pay it all in full, and that all of our sins would be paid for on the cross. All of those prophetic things, all of that stated, it's exciting for us as believers but I think that this is something that should give us the impetus. This is something that should push us and drive us for evangelism, that should change us each and every day. And I think about in First, Second Peter and in Jude, and over and over again in the scriptures, there's something that the writers do, and it's the fact that we can be very forgetful and we can forget things. And sometimes, like in Jude, it says, though you know all things, I desire to remind you. There are so many times where we as believers can get to a place where we forget all of the beautiful things that Christ has done for us, and we aren't sharing it with our neighbor as much as we should. And I think sometimes it's good for us to be shaken in a way that rattles us in the recognition of what is to come for those who do not know Christ. Because when we have that in our, in, our, in our mind, when we have that in our hearts and we're recognizing what it's like to live a life apart from Christ, just living that way, as John chapter three says that the wrath of God currently abides on the non-believer. They have to live with that every day. 
They don't have the hope. In fact, that is what happens to us, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, is that people ask you, they see something in you that causes them to ask you, why do you have a hope that is different than the outside world? Why is this different? Why, when I see you, you have a hope that's different than everyone else? You don't act like them, you don't talk like them, and you have a hope, you have a joy that you walk around with, and I'm here miserable. Why is that? And that's where it says that we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And we see that, and that is something, guys, that I wanna be a hope dealer, not a dope dealer. I wanna be a hope dealer. I wanna show people over and over again. I wanna give them the hope that I found, that when I was destitute, when I was in my worst, when I recognized that I was a sinner, the hope that I found in Jesus Christ because of what he's done on the cross and what he will do in me, how he makes me a new creation, and how he begins, when you come to faith, through the Holy Spirit and through his word, a process of sanctification where you become more and more a reflection of Jesus Christ, the Son, the perfect representation of the Father. And, and that's something that we can be dealing out to people as we are the hope ambassadors, as we are the ones who express to other people how they can be reconciled to God when they are foreign from him. It is so amazing, and we can do this over and over again through the scriptures. In Isaiah, he says quite clearly that the word of God never comes back void. The word of Chad comes back void, the word of Joe, the word of Steve, the word of John, the word of anyone that shares him here comes back void, but the word of God never ever comes back void. I think of uh, in, in the letter um, to Philemon, and one of the things that Paul writes to him is that he says, I pray that you are active in sharing your faith so you have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. And I know full well that when I share the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I share why the incarnation matters, I know I'm reminded so much of what I've been saved from. I know that I'm reminded of, wow, the God of the universe, the one who makes the stars, the one who made the DNA molecule, at one point was sitting in his mother's arms as a baby. He created the DNA molecule, he created the stars, he created the ecosystem, all of it, and yet at one point he was a baby. And I think to myself, wow, that's radical. And I'm sharing that with someone else and still I'm getting a message because it's coming from the word of God and it's being embedded in my heart, writing it in your heart that you may not sin against him. How will a young man keep his way pure? By guiding it according to his word. And I believe the more we remind ourselves of these truths, the more we remind ourselves that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts through soul and spirit, that it cuts through bone and marrow, that it deals with us. I, I believe that all of this will give us that impetus. So we go back to, as I had mentioned, the talk that we had last night with the young adults group. Why hasn't Jesus Christ come back? That is the question that we should be asking ourselves, knowing we can trust that he is. That's the helmet of salvation, the promise of his return, knowing that that's going to take place. We can ask ourselves why. We know that the incarnation took place. We know that Jesus Christ came. We know that he died a horrible death on the cross. We know that he resurrected. He didn't just do it in some cave where he got squeezed by an angel, right? He didn't just look at a rock inside of a hole and write down books and need goggles to read Egyptian hieroglyphics. That's Mormonism and Islam. He didn't do that. 
He died a public death on a walkway into Jerusalem. He rose again, not just to a couple people, but actually to over 500 people at one time in uh, just to the Corinthian church, right? Not to mention all the others. I mean, all of this, we're seeing this and, and we're like, wow, this is radical and we can share these things and this is amazing that we don't just have to say, well, hopefully it's true and hopefully that Muhammad got it right about Allah and we can trust that he was right. It was like, no, Jesus is even like, you know what, I'll make it really easy. I'm gonna give you four biographies. Oh, and then I'm gonna give you a biography just on what happened in the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then I'm gonna give you letters on how the church is supposed to run. And then I'm gonna give you this, this other prophetic writing where you actually get to know what's going to happen in the very end. Just radical, the love he has for us. And why hasn't he come back? Second Peter gives us that answer. In Second Peter chapter three, at verse eight it tells us, to the Lord, a, thousand, uh, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Okay, but how does that relate to his coming? Well, because God's not slow. He is not slow. But he's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And one of the things I think about when I think about that verse, and I relate that a lot of times to Ezekiel chapter 18, where it says, and I believe verse 23 and 32, sim similar things, basically, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it, rather that they would turn and live. That's our God, and I praise God, and this is something I actually do regularly, I praise God that he didn't come back on January 18th, 2009, because I came to faith on January 19th, 2009. And I don't know about you guys, and I think about this during this season, because you get a chance to maybe buy a gift for someone that you haven't talked to in a while, and maybe an opportunity of having an open dialogue about the gospel, and it's like you're celebrating Christmas, the very least we could do is talk about Jesus coming, and I think about that a lot, and I think, praise you, Lord, even though I want to be with you forever. Right now, I'd love to be with Jesus, right? But I praise you, Lord, because I have family members, I have people I love that don't know Jesus. They do not know him, they do not have their trust in him, and it breaks my heart. I have my neighbors who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I have people I walk by that just don't know him yet and I so badly want them to know him. And so while we are here on this earth being the salt and the light, now we can share these truths with people that they can have the promise of hope through judgment because when it comes to the hope that we have in Christ, it comes with the judgment that took place on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. And it's interesting because some things are contingent on whether or not you turn to Christ. And in Isaiah, the first five chapters of Isaiah, uh, I give a, just a quick overview before I, I wanna get into a couple other things, but the first five chapters of Isaiah are introductory, right? They're, they're, they're setting about the, what's going on at that time. And Isaiah is, I, I believe the, the entire book of Isaiah, that is, probably in terms of any one book in the entire Bible out of 66 books, if there's one book that gives you the most complete biblical theology, it's probably Isaiah. I mean, it is just radical when you really read that book. 
and you see the problems and how God's gonna solve it. And you see the doubts and he's gonna prove to them why he is the only true God over and over and over again. But in the very beginning, he is chastising them about the things that are going on. He's basically telling them in the very introduction in chapter one that he's like, look, look at the donkey. He goes where I tell him to go. Look at this. You know, basically one of the things that he brings out is just nature and its order. And it's like, look, you know, the sun sets. It's not like tomorrow it's gonna be like, you know what, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna do this on the south and the north actually. No, when God puts these things in order, that's what they do. And he's like, Israel, I've given you all this and yet you won't even listen. At least they do what I'm telling you. You won't even do the things that I'm telling you. And it's a pretty sad thing. But God, throughout that entire book, all 66 chapters of Isaiah, over and over again, you see hope through judgment because they're not understanding what God's going to do. And one of the things just in the, the, the time and space that they were in when it comes to Isaiah as a prophet, they are about to be taken captive by the Assyrians. Now this is in 722 BC when it fully culminates. There's like three different periods where they begin taking them out, but ultimately it culminates in the full, I guess, devastation of all of Northern Israel uh, in about 722. And so Isaiah is prophesying to a people who do not believe that they are going to be taken into captivity. Now remember that the northern and southern tribe of Israel, that was split up after the time of Solomon when it was split between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Before that, you just had one king. You had Saul, you had David, and you had Solomon. And then the kingdom is split in half. It's not a good thing. It's a, it's a very bad thing. And it's split in half. And the first ones to go captive are are uh, the northern tribes, the 10 tribes that went up north. And then eventually, uh, Judah would also be taken captive completely in about 586 BC. And it actually talks about how wicked they got, that they actually had worse sin on their head than even what northern got to, and northern was pretty wicked. But Isaiah is prophesying to the northern tribes before they are taken captive by the Assyrians. Jeremiah, on the other hand, prophesies about the southern kingdom and how Judah was gonna be taken captive by the Babylonians. But in Isaiah chapter one, and that's why I love this book because he tells them about all these things that are going to happen to them. And they think the opposite, like every single time. It's basically, they do not believe they're gonna be taken captive because the Lord is here. And guess what? We have his house. That's basically what happens in Jeremiah. We have his house. So where's God going to live? He doesn't have a house. <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, you guys have too small of a view on who God is, right? But one of the things that happens is when, when nations are taken captive, they don't get out. That's not just something that happens. They don't get out. So now the, the Israelites are concerned because if they're taken captive, if they even get taken captive, they're never getting out. And Isaiah is prophesying this hope and judgment the entire time, trying to explain to them there is hope in what is going to happen to you. And I think in Isaiah 1, verse 18, a lot of people have this verse. It's a beautiful verse. We sing a lot of uh, beautiful worship songs uh, related to this. But in, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. 
If you consent and obey, you will eat of the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has been spoken. And so we see quite clearly that God is giving them a contingent promise. The fact is you need to trust, you need to obey, you need to follow, or it's going to get pretty rough for you. And when we look at the history, and you can do this through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings go over a lot of the kingdom of the northern tribe of Israel, where First and Second Chronicles deal with the kings of Judah. And so you can go through those and see the bad and the good and the good and the bad. There's some awesome kings like King Jehoshaphat, right? There's some awesome kings like King Josiah, and then there's other kings like Ahaz who is involved in the Isaiah 7, 14 prophecy. But this idea of hope through the judgment is because God needs to deal with sin. One of the things when we look at um, Israel, if you talk to Jews, I love sharing the gospel with Jews. It's one of my favorite things to do, in fact, when I fell in love with my wife, it's because I was watching her share the gospel with someone, um, um, sharing Isaiah 53 with um, a Jewish man out on the streets of Santa Monica. This is before we're together. Um, and I was like, wow, that's a pretty, that's pretty cool. You know, and she knew the word, and I'm like, man, I was like humbled. I was like, man, I better know the word. You know, it'd be embarrassing, you know, be like trying to talk about scripture, and I don't know what I'm talking about. But nonetheless, I was like, wow, that is really cool. And then I began just loving sharing the pictures in the Old Testament. Joseph being, you know, Messiah ben Joseph, uh, a Messiah in the reflection of who Joseph is in his life. The fact that, that Joseph was pushed away by his brothers, right? that he was rejected by his own brothers, and that he was sold into slavery, he was thrown in a pit. I mean, all of the things that happened to Jesus, you saw it happening. Oh, not, not to mention he gave them to who? Gentiles, right? What did the Pharisees do with Jesus? Let's give him off to the Gentiles. Where do they throw him? Down into a pit, right? And then guess what? When they're starving, eventually, there's an eschatological promise through Joseph when you read it too, because when they're starving and they're in famine and they need help, they come back to Joseph. And the Bible actually describes that that is what's going to take place with Israel. In Romans 9 through 11, this is really ferreted out very clearly. And a lot of the prophecies related to it are in, in Zechariah. And we see that this fountain of cleansing is going to be open up to the Jews in the end, where they will look on him whom they've pierced. And in fact, if you read Zechariah 12:10, it right at the beginning of the chapter, it says, I, the Lord, Ayath, and then later it says they will look on Ayath, whom they've pierced. They will look on me, whom they've pierced, because Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. They will look on me, whom they've pierced. And that fountain of cleansing gets opened up, and at the end, they will look at the one whom they've pierced, and they will see him and look and say, we thought he was smitten of God. We thought he was cursed. That's the prophecy we have in Isaiah chapter 53, starting in chapter 52, that they see that report. Who would believe our report? We thought he was, he was smitten of God. We, we thought he was cursed. We thought he was getting what he deserved. But ultimately, all the sins that we've committed were placed upon him. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. All of it was placed upon Jesus, and that 
what we read in Isaiah 52 and 53 is what the Jews will be saying when they see him whom they've pierced, when they see Jesus Christ. And we see that. It's so beautiful when you see all these parallels and all of these things that are taking place in God's word and how true they are, all of the things that happen to get to the incarnation. Prophecies that happen even in Genesis chapter three. In fact, the Proto-Evangelium, as it's been called, is in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, if you remember, Genesis chapter three is the chapter where we have the curse, right? We have sin befalling the world, thorns and thistles come up, death happens, and so forth. And then the curses are given out. And one of those things we are told very clearly concerning the serpent and concerning the woman, that the woman would bear a seed. And the seed of that woman would eventually crush the head of the serpent and it would bruise his heel. So the first gospel, I believe, the first gospel understanding that we get, the first proto-evangelium, the first gospel is given to us in the curse when we are told how God's gonna deal with it. He's going to crush Satan and his heel will be bruised the seed of that woman. And that promise that we have in Genesis, I believe is related to us very clearly in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. And we think about that verse, it's such a beautiful verse. And a lot of times during Christmas time, we see Isaiah nine, six. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? And then it gives these titles like El Gabor, Abiyah, these titles that are only given to God himself, Right? So it doesn't just fit the mold of Hezekiah. But there are these, these things that he's called, eternal father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God. But it's that first part of the verse, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that relates us to his nature. Because if you remember, when Jesus Christ was placed into the womb of Mary, we are told that the Holy Spirit placed him there. So a child was born, there's a human nature to Christ, but a son is given by way of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Muslims, if you share the gospel with them on the streets, will often believe that it means that Mary actually had sex with someone. And God can't have sex. And the problem is they don't understand the incarnation they don't understand that the Bible is very clear that the sign is that she is a virgin. And unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We not only get his human nature at the child being born of a woman, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, but we also get his deity in the fact that he was given by way of the Holy Spirit. The that he existed in the very form of God, but did not find it equality with God, something to be grasped or held onto but actually let go of it in becoming a man and taking on the form of human likeness. Not only becoming a man, a little, a little lower than the angels it says in Philippians chapter two, but then it says not only did he become a man, he actually calls him a doulos, which is the lowest form of servanthood. You have a diakonos, where we get the term deacon, and then you have a doulos, which is a, a bondservant, a slave, the lowest form of a servant. That's what Jesus became on our behalf. And it says that in Philippians chapter two. And it says not only did he die, but he died a horrible death on a cross. It's like this succession of like, God, he is the God man, right? He exists in the very form of God. He is the God man. 
And he became a man, a little lower than the angels. And he didn't just become a man, but he actually died. And he didn't just die, he died a horrible, shameful death on a cross. And I think about that verse a lot, and I think about the cross a lot, because so often, and especially you see these, you know, uh, crucifixes, you know, Jesus did have victory, and he got off that cross, and he actually was risen. And you see these pictures of him, and they're, they're very different and so forth, but they're always covering him. And sometimes he's got like all these muscles and he's really buff. And I'm like, that is a weird picture. And it's like he was beaten into cooked hamburger before he even went to the cross. Beaten horribly before he even went there. Marred more than any other man, as the scriptures say. And then he went to that cross in shame, Right? And I think about all these pictures that people draw and it's like, oh, look at buff Jesus up there with his nice cloak. It's like they tore his, his garments apart and sold them off as prophesied. That's exactly what happened. And he took that shame upon himself on our behalf. And I think that we get that wrong when we don't understand just how horrible it was, what took place in order for us to receive salvation. And I like to look at different verses over and over again because I think about this, that judgment is not God's, it's not his intended last word, even when he brings judgment. Not just on Jesus, obviously, that was it is finished. But even when he's bringing it to Israel, it's not God's intended last word, but it's meant for their cleansing. When he brings judgment, it's meant for their cleansing over and over again. And when you do share, as I was mentioning earlier, when you do share with a Jewish person and you ask them where their Messiah is, a lot of times they'll say, he's not here yet, he hasn't come. And if you ask them why, one of the things they will say is because he is coming to rule and to reign. If they believe in Messiah, some are so um, you know, secularized that they don't really care, it's just more cultural. But if they do believe in a Mashiach, they do believe that a Messiah is coming, a lot of times they'll say, well, he will rule and he will reign, there'll be peace all over the earth. What kind of peace? You don't see it here. Where is it? I don't see this peace that the Messiah is supposed to bring, the promises, and they're not understanding the first and second coming. They're not understanding that it's not just Messiah ben David that looks like a ruler who will reign, but it's Messiah ben Joseph as well, who will be thrown into a pit. It's Messiah ben Joseph as well that he will be rejected by his own brethren. And the Messiah ben David is coming, that he is the same person and that he is coming. And one of the things that they're missing is the fact, fact that first, sin must be dealt with. Because if Christ came and did not deal with sin, he'll deal with it then and all of these things we read about the judgment to come is gonna be received by everybody unless their sins have been bought and paid for. Unless the Messiah comes and pays for their sins as he did on the cross in Calvary as prophesied, unless he did that, then when he comes to rule and reign, all would have been swallowed up. Every single one of us for any sin that we committed would have been swallowed up. But first, the Messiah came to pay for the sins of the world so that when he comes back, 
those who have been bought and paid for, those who have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ will now begin to rule and reign with him. So the promises of Messiah ben David for him to look like King David, they are certainly to come. And guess what? We can know that because his death already took place. And these are the very things that he promised, that he said to his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for them. And that where he is, we might be also. That's a promise we all have. So even though there was judgment on the cross, we recognize that our hope is completely in that judgment that took place. And this is something that over and over again the scriptures say, and so many times Israel missed. And so many times they wanted another message that was different than the one that God was giving them over and over again. And I think of Jeremiah chapter 29, and I think of Jeremiah chapter 27, 28, and 29, but Jeremiah 29, and this is a favorite verse of Word of Faith heretics. This is a favorite verse of, I think most grandmas have a plate or a cup somewhere at their house, Jeremiah 29, 11. In fact, I'll read it. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful verse. And I remember hearing the testimony of, um, it's after I came to faith. It was really cool, actually. And then we ended up becoming uh, friends. But one of my um, wrestling counselors, uh, when I was at wrestling camp as a non-believing uh, a young adult, I think I was probably going into my junior year, but this guy was, at the time, he was the national champ. He was trying to become an Olympian. His name was Mark Munoz. Uh, he wrestled for Oklahoma State. He taught me the low single, which was like one of my favorite moves my senior year. He taught me, uh, we called it the Munoz tilt, and he showed me all these moves, and then at the end of the session, uh, you broke off with all the different heads and he was the one with my smaller group and I was excited to hear him talk and then all he did was just share the gospel with me. And I was like, oh man, I want to talk about wrestling, you know? And then years later, I'm now saved, came to the Lord and I'm at uh, the state finals with a wrestler of mine and I went into what's called the FCA breakfast, uh, champions breakfast, they do it every year. And at the FCA champions breakfast, um, it's the fellowship of Christian athletes. And this one is, they always have a wrestler uh, who loves Jesus come and share their testimony. And then you eat some food and it's a good time to fellowship with some wrestling brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's really, really cool. And he shared his testimony and he said, this was my life verse. And he talked about how, you know, when he was a kid, and by the way, he ended up being a UFC fighter named the Filipino Wrecking Machine. Uh, and uh, he, but he was the sweetest guy. And he said, this is my life verse. And he said he thought about it a lot because as a kid, he was bullied. He lived in Vallejo, California. It wasn't a great area. When he would run home, he said that he, would, he had, was so excited because he had these really nice shoes that his mom got him for school. And he's walking home and he gets beat up, jumped, and his shoe's stolen. And he gets so angry and then joined the wrestling team and learned how to defend himself. But he said this thing, he knew that God had a plan for him always, you know? And I was like, well, that's cool, you know? And he had a really cool testimony. And then eventually we got to talk and I shared with him that he shared uh, the gospel with me and I rejected it. But now I know the Lord and he started coaching at other school and I would talk to him when we'd see him at tournaments and stuff. And it was really cool. But I thought, man, the context of that verse is so much better 
than simply those verses. And a lot of people say, oh, this doesn't apply to you and so forth. But I believe when you actually have the context of the verse, you can actually make an application way, way, way better than anything that someone tries to do in a surface level of the teaching. And in fact, if you actually go back to Jeremiah chapter 28, starting at verse two, we're gonna get a better understanding. Now, Isaiah, who was writing and told them their sin would, uh, is like scarlet, but it'll be washed white as snow. That was to the northern tribes of Israel that were gonna have the Assyrians take over that area right, that they were going to go captive. But Jeremiah is now writing to Judah and how they are going to be taken captive. But there's another prophet on the scene. And in fact, this prophet's name is Hananiah, which means the grace of God. Isn't that so sweet? You have the grace of God from Hananiah, and he's going to give some very sweet prophecies for us to hear. So in Jeremiah chapter 28, before we get to chapter 29, and a principle that I really enjoy when it comes to reading any verses, I heard a long time ago and it's kind of stuck with me, and it's read every verse. Someone comes, brings up a text to you, bring every, read every verse with 20-20 vision. Now for me, that's really hard because I squint a lot and I probably need glasses, but I don't wear them. So I can't do that. But 2020 vision in terms of scripture reading is reading the 20 verses before and the 20 verses after. It doesn't always give you the full context, but it, a lot of times if you play with that principle, you'll actually get a good understanding of what's being talked about and you won't get some verse just taken randomly out of context that you have no idea what's happening. And you won't apply some verse to you that doesn't actually apply. But this one, we're gonna go back a little further. Now, even before we get to 28, in, verse, in chapter 27, God actually has Jeremiah put on a yoke to show them they're gonna be taken into captivity where they don't wanna go. And he actually puts on a yoke as God tells him to. And actually we learn, if we read through to chapter 28, he, it's not like he just took it on for a sermon. He's actually got it on for quite a long time. And so here's what happens, starting at verse 2. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God have of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now remember, God has already told Jeremiah, here is your yoke. This is the yoke that they are going to go in. They're going into captivity. And this is Hananiah, the son of Azor, the prophet who was in Gibeon, spoke to Jeremiah and said these things. Mind you, he's been for months probably carrying around this yoke that God told him to put on. And now someone's gonna tell him something. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. So remember, this is supposedly a prophet from God telling him this is what God has said, that yoke is being broke. Verse three, within two years, I'm gonna bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So this sounds pretty good. Grace of God is coming, and they don't have to be under Babylonian captivity, according to this prophet. But then verse 5 and follows, happens. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priest and the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. 
May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words, which you have prophesied, to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Now, there, are, there is a little bit of an argument here I've heard from different people. Some think that this entire thing is sarcastic, which makes sense with everything that follows, and I somewhat pretty much agree there. But I think probably a little bit of Jeremiah was thinking, yeah, that'd be great. That sounds wonderful, right? If we were told that the seven-year tribulation uh, it has just started and, and so forth, and I, I'm sure there'd be parts of us that would say, oh man, especially the last three and a half years, but I'm sure there were, there'd be parts of us would be like, oh, that's great if it's not starting. That'd be awesome. But, uh, you know, here's what the word already says, and here's what's happening, right? There's a covenant that's been signed. This guy's going to break it three and a half years in. There, there's some stuff going on. But here's what he then says after that. Yet hear now this word, which I'm about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesy against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Then Hananiah took uh, then Hananiah, the prophet, took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah, and the prophet broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. So it seems like Hananiah not only thinks he's hearing from the Lord, but seems like he likes to use some illustrations in his preaching. And it doesn't seem like it's going too well when he gets some responses. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, go and speak to Hananiah, saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made, the, made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I, also, and I have also given him the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year, you're going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah, the prophet, died in the same year, in the seventh month. So one thing that false prophets uh, typically try not to do is actually date set because uh, then they get caught, right? Was it, is it camping? I think it was near Harold uh, Camping. Uh, who he just kept doing it though. It's pretty wild stuff. And he kept saying, oh, the world's gonna end here, the world's gonna end here. These date setters, I mean, it's just so ridiculous. But I find it very interesting that God cuts Hananiah short before even the date that he said was gonna take place. He's like, no, it's required of you right now. You did not speak as you were supposed to speak. It's interesting because in Isaiah, the eighth chapter when he's talking about those who consult mediums and all of these things, 
And it's something that comes even from Deuteronomy as well, but if these, have, these people have something that's, that doesn't come to pass when they say it, there's no light, there's no dawn in them. And that's a promise he, he says of those who would falsely prophesy. And here's Hananiah giving this false prophecy, breaking off yokes that God had placed there, by the way, breaking off the yoke that God put on Jeremiah and saying, wow, you got a new sign there, Jonathan. That's cool. That's good because I have bad vision. So that's awesome. Uh, and, but, uh, and, and taking that down and, and pulling off the very thing that God said was going to take place. And here's the problem. A lot of times when it comes to these trials with these things, that happen in our life or anyone else's life, the problem that many people have is the fact that they're like, no, I'm gonna break out of it this way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it this way. You know, I have talked with um, believers who basically said, hey, I can't get a spouse that's a believer. I'm just gonna go with someone who's a non-believer. And I equate that to trying to wash your car uh, with what your dog left on the front yard. You could wipe and wipe and wipe, and guess what? You're just wiping it with doggy poo-poo. And that's what you're doing because God has said explicitly in his word not to be unevenly yoked with the non-believer. What does Christ have in common with Belial? Satan, by the way. What does that believer have in common with a non-believer? So you're gonna try to be like, well, if I just keep doing this very thing that God has told me not to do, eventually it'll be okay. You know, I talked to um, some people that were involved in different ministries and stuff, and we had gone out to a lunch, and there a number of us after a teaching, and, you know, we were talking uh, about, and I said, hey, you know, with me being in youth ministry, man, this is a while ago, maybe nine years ago, but I was like, with me being in youth ministry, like, one of the verses I always write in my heart is 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 14, and I think when you get all the way to chapter, um, chapter 7 as well, when it says, therefore, come out of their midst, my people. And I said, it's so important not to be unevenly yoked, you know, and especially with young people, because Satan, a lot of people th think Satan comes with like these horns and these picks and stuff. And I can tell you from young people who deconstruct from their faith and stuff, 99 times out of 100, they've come uh, typically in a miniskirt with a bong and a, and a bottle of alcohol. And all of a sudden, they have all these questions, you know, I've, nobody's giving me answers, and they have professors telling them why uh, the word of God is not truly the word of God, and everything you believed is not true, and by the way, they're being tempted in every way, in all those lust-filled, fleshly desires, and accompanied alongside this doubt that they're now having is the very sin that they want to commit, and now they are not next to brothers and sisters in Christ that can help hold them accountable and guard them, and now their parents aren't there with the watchful eye to say, please don't go into that. We love you. And guess what? They run headlong into that at the advice of their non-believing friend. All of that is because we become much more like the world because we send so many of our children and some of them are not ready for that off into Rome and expect them not to become back Romans. Uh, I mean, it's really, really a dangerous game. And this is something that God was very clear about. And so I think about those verses because I had someone tell me while we were having that discussion regarding, hey, man, we got to make sure, you know, we tell them of the dangers. You know, I was a non-believer before and I knew Christian guys and girls and I was uh, a corrupting figure in their life. And the parents thought I was just a nice guy because I am good at talking. 
and I wasn't. I was absolutely on Satan's team trying to get them to defile themselves in the very way that their parents taught them not to in the very way that the Holy Spirit that was filled in those houses was convicting them not to do the very things that I was helping them get involved with. And so I care about that stuff. And it's really important that we see that and say, no, no, no. And so when I was sitting down with someone, they said, yeah, well, it worked out for me. I started dating a non-believer and now we're married and have kids. And I was like, hey, man, I'm just letting you know, like, I have multiple family members that would tell me the same thing as non-believers. Well, it works out for me. We have all these success stories and stuff. But you are taking the grace of God and turning it into a license of immorality. Just because God was gracious towards you does not mean you should then say, oh, so this is okay to do because God showed me grace in this area. Plenty of people by the grace and providence of God have been conceived in unbiblical ways. And we shouldn't look at those times where they have now come to faith and those wicked things that take place and say, well, it can still work. We can say, by the grace of God, there go they and there go I. That's the difference. And so it's important for us to say, wait a second, where are those things where, yeah, it's a lot tougher and obedience can be really difficult at times, but ultimately, this thing that's happening, this judgment that's taking place, I can get that hope through the judgment because I know God has a purpose. And that brings us to Jeremiah 29. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. Tells us the letter was sent. He tells them, thus says the Lord in verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear your sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or in your midst or your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And now here is the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. 70 years of captivity is about to take place. And now the beautiful fact that God works through judgment for our hope and for our good, now we can bring that into context. You had a liar in Hananiah who was called the grace of God while offering them a license of immorality, going against exactly what God has already spoken, taking the yoke off that God is the one who placed it there, and saying, let me take this off for you, it'll be just fine. And then he says, no, we are going into that yoke, but guess what, have children. Continue to be and follow the Lord. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And I, I believe it's the reason why when Peter writes his letter, he talks about how he is in Babylon. 
and how we are a people similar to this under the Babylonian captivity as believers, as sojourners on this earth, as aliens, as this is not our home. We have a heavenly home and we know that we have a culminating faith. It's not cyclical like the pagan religions, like the horoscopes that just move with how the sun and the stars and everything moves, but we have a culmination that happens when our Lord Jesus comes back. And the culmination that we get and the promises that we're gonna read in Jeremiah 29, 11 here can be applied to us in the same way that Peter applies it, that we are sojourners in Babylon even to this very day. So when we get to verse 11, all of that in context, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for your calamity, to give you a future, a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when, when you search for me with all of your heart. The promise of the new covenant is then given in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's quoted twice in Hebrews chapter eight and in Hebrews chapter 10. This new covenant that we were going to receive, one that would not just be written on stone, but one that would be written on the hearts of men. And in fact, the author of Hebrews calls it a better covenant. When Paul describes in Romans chapter seven, the relation between the old covenant and new covenant, he said that covenant needs to die in order for us to be married to the new covenant because you can't have two spouses. That's the argument he makes at the beginning of Romans, the seventh chapter. And we see that so clearly. So how do we apply this now and recognize, and wait a second, we see this new covenant written in our hearts. We see Jesus said to sum up all of the law and the prophets, and I believe what he was summing up there is all of the Old Testament straight from Genesis to Malachi. They had a different way that they sparsed that, but nonetheless, he was summarizing everything that you see. How does he summarize it? How should we do it? What, what should we do? How do we walk with Christ? How do we know him? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes all the law and the prophets. And we saw how Jeremiah was describing to those sojourners who were gonna be in captivity how they should walk. And here's how Peter describes it to us, starting in 1 Peter chapter four, and I'm just being honest with you, 1 Peter chapter four is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. 1 Peter and 2 Peter, I could live in those textbooks. I absolutely love those books. I probably quote from them um, maybe more than any other books. And I just, I'm telling you, they have such a practical understanding of how we are to walk when Peter is writing, the same Peter that Galatians chapter one and chapter two, we see specifically in chapter two when Paul talks about rebuking Peter to his face because when he saw the Jews were there and he was sitting with Gentiles, that he would walk away from them and not sit with the Gentiles because he was scared of how the Jews would react to him sitting there. The same Peter who not until the 10th chapter of Acts does he finally understand that Gentiles can be saved that same Peter at the beginning of this letter actually says that you of the same faith as ours to a Gentile church. Think about that. This guy who was rejecting all these things, it's amazing. And then he gives some really awesome practical lessons. First Peter chapter four. Therefore, and I'll leave with this verse. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose 
because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already has passed and is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You see those wicked things that they're talking about? One of the, there's a couple things that, that stuck out to me when I read those, because so often Satan has tried to allow these things into the church, that this is just normative, don't worry. Be the guys where you go to these drinking parties, you know, be the guys, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. Everyone looks at women this way. It's not a big deal. Everyone messes up and gets drunk and so forth. It's no big deal. And yet when I read First Thessalonians, for example, when I read Jesus from the Mount of Olivet, he warns about those that are going out and getting drunk with the drunkards. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he warns about those false prophets whose judgment has long forth. God has already decided that these false prophets, that those who would look at a new believer and tell them, you're totally fine, do what you want and you'll be a believer. Those Hananiahs that are around giving those false prophecies that saying, you know what, it's okay, it's no big deal, we all stumble as someone's living a life. Not somebody who does stumble because James said in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 that stumbling blocks are unavoidable, but he does say, woe to the one by which they come. It'd be better to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the middle of the ocean. So causing one to stumble is a very, very serious thing and we should take that very seriously. But all of these things are the very things that I notice those promises in Second Peter are the very things that I notice when they tell people, basically give them a license for their sin and say it's totally fine, it's totally normative, rather than saying it's something we should repent of, giving grace for those who stumble to lift them up, not and keep them down, but also to remind them that God, you don't wanna be doing the very things. You don't wanna be practicing and enjoying and even watching and listening to the very things that nailed Jesus to the cross. I do not want to glorify, I do not want to honor, I do not want to watch, I don't want to meditate on the things that nailed Jesus to the cross. I don't need to meditate on murder and violence and the horrors of some of the music scene and some of the things that they sing about because that, that all of those sins were nailed to the cross. I'm not gonna glorify in those things. And when I see drunkenness and drinking parties and other abominable idolatries, I say, I do not want this for any, anything near this for my walk. It says, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. What should be their reaction to you not doing these things? It's marvel and malign. They should look at you and say, well, why don't you practice these things we, don't, we, we do? Because guess what that's gonna do? The very thing that he mentioned the tra- chapter before in 1 Peter 3.15, it's gonna cause them to ask, why do you have a hope? You don't get drunk like the rest of us. You don't do all this stuff. You don't sleep around. You don't do all that stuff. And yet you have a hope. You're, you, you're fun to be around. You're, you're a normal guy. You're not like a weirdo. Like, well, why? And then you're ready to give an answer. When you look exactly like the world, when you do the very things that they do, you watch the same movies, you drink the same drinks, you do everything they do, what are they gonna ask? Oh, you know, well, what's the difference? There is none. 
says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. By the way, that's just a reminder back to us what we talked about in the beginning, that double-edged sword of the fact that when Emmanuel, God with us, is actually with us, right? That's a double-edged sword that we get to receive all the blessings, but there are those. He equates them as Gentiles. He's talking about non-believers here because he's talking to Gentiles. And he's equating that to what? He's equating that to being in unbelief, that double-edged sword once again. He's ready to judge living in the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be sound of judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I didn't get to the verses right after this, but I encourage you guys afterwards to maybe read the rest of 1 Peter 4, especially when it deals with some of the struggles that they were going through, some of the persecutions they were going through and what he tells them and describes to them to do because it is powerful and it is the hope we have through judgment. Knowing that that judgment is coming, how shall the people of God live? How shall we walk knowing that our neighbors, our friends, our family that we love do not know Jesus and on that double-edged sword, they're on the wrong side. We are the sheep and they are the goats that are separated at the end And we do not want that for them. We love them. We want to see the world with kingdom goggles. We want to look at people the way Christ does, whether it's us as believers or the world as non-believers. That we want to edify one another in every encounter, and I'll leave you guys with this before we pray. Every encounter we should have with this world should be one of two things. If you have an encounter with a believer, it should be for their edification. And that takes multiple forms. In one way, edification is just building something up with an encouraging word. And then sometimes it's also presenting somebody on their shortcomings in love and in truth and sharing with someone, hey, this is, you're going off here. We need to fix this. And then with the outside world, it should always be one of salvation, wanting to minister to them in some way for salvation. It doesn't mean that every time you, you meet someone, every time you have uh, someone's non-believer, you have to read through the good person test or read 1 Corinthians 15, but the point of your meeting with them isn't to become like them, isn't to be yoked with them, but the point of your meeting and hanging out with them is so that they may come to know the risen king and see that through the judgment that happened on Calvary's cross, we have this great hope. If you guys can stand, I'm going to say a prayer as we finish up.